Hello, fellow podcasters. Welcome to the Safasa Podcast, where we discuss various topics around neurodiversity and autism spectrum disorder with self-advocates, program directors, and occupational therapists, families, and clinicians. I hope you enjoy what we have in store for you today. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of the Center for Autism Services Alberta Students Association from the University of Alberta. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes and education only. The Center for Autism Services Alberta Students Association name and all forms and abbreviations are the property of its owner and its use does not imply endorsement of or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. Welcome listeners to another episode of the Sufasa podcast. Today we have our special guest Grant Bruno with us. So Grant, I'll hand it over to you for now. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, especially with respect to autism? Yeah, for sure. I am Grant Bruno. I'm a PhD student here at the University of Alberta in the Department of Pediatrics. And my research is exploring autism in First Nations communities. And so I have a, a deep personal connection to autism. I'm a parent, a father. Uh, I got four children, two of which are on the autism spectrum, um, very different autisms, so to speak. But also at the same time, I feel like my children have taught me so much about, you know, just being a good person in general, which I find. And I, uh, I'm really grateful that I'm able to bring both the PhD research and my experiences as a father together, along with the fact that I am Nehiao or Plains Cree. I'm a registered member of Samson Cree Nation, which is a, um, which is one of the communities or reserves that makes up Musquatchies. Musquatchies is about an hour south of Edmonton. It's a large First Nations community. It's about 18,000 on-reserve members. And so bringing those three experiences or those three perspectives together in such like a an important way has given me a lot of opportunity to not only become a better father, but to give back to my community as well. Because what I've learned is that there's there's very little work in this area, very little research. And so I'm really grateful that I, ha I have the opportunity to, to identify and, and address that gap. That's awesome. I actually went to Muscatese a while ago with part of my class. And so it was really, it was a really cool experience. And I think that's what kind of led us to look into autism and indigenous um, for through an indigenous lens in the first place. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, so this is kind of connected to what you already said, but what would you say your connection with ASD, the ASD community is and what influenced your decision to research ASD specifically through like a first nation lens? And if that's, if you already kind of answered that, um, could you maybe explain a little bit about what your research focuses on specifically? Yeah, so I, my first actual experience with autism was when I was about 21 years old. I had taken a job as an educational assistant. And this is when my sons, my twin boys, were just born. So they're about like one or two years old, pretty young. We didn't have, we had no idea one of them was going to be autistic, but we, but I was working as an EA and I was actually working with two autistic students uh, in grade three and they were brother and sister. And I remember thinking to myself, even back then, like, you know, these, these are just children, right? And that's how I kind of approached that job was that I'm not there to, you know, judge or put these children in any weird or, or, or difficult situations. I'm just there to kind of guide them through, 
through what they need to learn in school and make sure that they're you know enjoying themselves really because I feel like there's an overemphasis within education systems on the academic and so I take a different approach myself and I do this with my own family is I, I really emphasize and prioritize mental and spiritual health and so that's the approach I used with them now my older son so I said I had twin boys Marshall and Oliver Marshall's on the spectrum he his optimism isn't um, that I guess noticeable so to speak he really you know he excels academically he knows how to socialize um, unless you had a lot of experience with autism you probably wouldn't even recognize the autism um, but he does have challenges around social situations you know he can get overwhelmed in crowds or too much noise and he has a lot of challenges around other sensory things as well like he can't for the life of him can't go into a hot tub he, he tells me he's like why why are you trying to cook me and and uh i'm like i'm not trying to cook you like understand like he he just cannot like he feels like he's being you know boiled to death <laughs> but um he's also very he's a hilarious child too he uh he's very literal actually and i know that's again one of the other stereotypes of the autistic community but he really I feel like the fact that he's able just to say whatever comes to his mind and not beat around the bush, to me, that's uh, that's something that should be celebrated. And it's something that I, I'm really like, I'm a, I mean, I look at that and I see somebody that isn't afraid. Like I say, most humans, we beat around the bush, right? We, we don't go straight directly to like what the problem is. We're often like trying to, um, we're often trying to make things as they're not instead of him, he, he says, and, and he sees things as they are, which to me is a gift. Um, and then we have my seven-year-old, my seven-year-old Anders. Um, Anders is really one of the sweetest, most gentle human beings that I've ever met. He, he has a lot of challenges around verbally speaking, but he still communicates. He starting to get a lot better at socializing, you know, in, in social situations and things like that. And he really just, and we get this all the time. So he works with speech language pathologists and occupational therapists. And every time he works with a different one, they're often, they always ask like, is he always this happy? I just say, yeah, that, mm -hmm. that's just who he is. Mm -hmm. I'm really grateful for him too, obviously, because he's taught me so much too. He's allowed me just to be, to show gratitude, gratitude towards things. I think a lot of people take for granted. Um, for example, we, we do a lot of walking in our household. We know we go for hikes. Just walk around the city here, for, you know, find different areas to <clears throat> get some exercise. And I remember one time we went for a walk, and this is when he was wasn't speaking very much, but went for a walk, and we had to take him away from his Nintendo Switch, and he doesn't like that, right? Like that's his favorite thing. And so we're like, we got to put the Switch away. We're gonna go for a walk. You can play it when we get back. And we weren't very far in this walk. We're maybe two, maybe three kilometers in, and he turns around and he looks right at me and uh, and my wife, and he says this is boring <laughs> and i remember i like i didn't want to get upset like usually when children talk back to you you're like no you can't talk back right so i was really i was really grateful in that moment i was like wow thank you for for expressing your feelings like and then mm -hmm. telling us exactly how you feel because i feel like a lot like i said a lot of parents they take all those little things for granted and we just don't anymore like we're grateful for for him we're grateful for his brothers um, and then my youngest daughter who I don't suspect is autistic, but um, she's two years old and she's really, I think the superstar of the family. She, her brothers absolutely love her. They're all, they're all really great siblings to each other, which I'm grateful for, mm -hmm. but Anders and Marshall and Oliver, who's the other twin, they're so patient and I'm, I'm, and they're so patient with each other. 
um, because Oliver being uh, a sibling of autistic, of autistic uh, brothers, he really has taken on you know, a, a very thoughtful and caregiving role, uh, not to the extent where we're trying to make him a parent, but at the same time, my, the, all of them are just like these great gifts to us. And so the reason I started doing the research was that wasn't when Marshall was diagnosed. So Marshall was diagnosed late because we just didn't see it and we didn't know how really what it was. And he was diagnosed in grade three, which is later than I think most children. But mm -hmm. Anders, on the other hand, he wasn't talking by like two and a half, three. And so I had suspicions. And so I preemptively put him on the, the waiting list to get a, an assessment at the Glen Rose when he was just after two years old. And I'm really glad that I did because the waiting list you know, is, 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 I think, longer now than ever. And so after that diagnosis and after, so Marshall's diagnosed and then Anders just a, a year and a half later, I went to and did my own research. So I was just finishing up my master's. So I had all this, I, I developed this new skill set. I could go do my own research. I could go and find the literature. I could, um, I could find, you know, meaningful things that I, that would help me be a better parent. But when I went to go do that, I quickly learned that there was very little research in this area, right. especially in Canada. So I am currently developing a scoping review that's looking at all the, the research literature and the gray literature that's, that's explores you know, autism in indigenous communities just within Canada. And to date, I've only found, I found 24 total articles, half of which are peer reviewed. And that is a low, wow. low, 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 low number. Right. And so I was working at the time, I'd finished my master's, I was working in Enoch uh, with the chief and I ended up reaching out to Dr. Lonnie Zwangenbaum, who's the director of the Autism Research Center at the, at the Glen Rose. And I asked him like, would you be willing to take me on as a PhD student so I can you know, do this work that has to be done by somebody It might as well be me. Mm -hmm. And so we got to a conversation. He said, yeah, for sure. I'd love to take you on. He introduced me to Dr. David Nicholas, who of course is a professor of social work at the University of Calgary. Um, he's also a parent to an autistic child. And so us three, we started to develop this plan for my PhD. And my PhD work is very community led, which is amazing because a lot of research that happens within indigenous communities is often done by an outsider. And mm -hmm. it's often, uh, uh, you often have to like frame your research according to what outsiders want and need. And my right. research is really addressing that because I've developed a research advisory circle. I've been able to put all my decision-making through that circle. And so now I'm at the stage where I'm, I'm in, I'm gonna be doing my candidacy exam next month. And from there, I'm able to do the research. And so it's gonna be very reflective of the wants and needs of the community, which I'm really excited for. Um, right. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's, I think it's so important that it's within the community and what you said about it being like outsiders are usually the ones who do it. And then it's such a broad topic, but yeah, there's so few articles on it or even like most of them you said are peer reviewed anyway. So yeah, that's really awesome that you're tackling this head on. Um, could you maybe share with us a little bit about the overarching goals and the impact of your research that you hope to in the future? Yeah, so I'm actually doing my research at a very selfish level. Of course, I'm just trying to be a better parent. That was my original mm -hmm. goal. And I tell people that, and that kind of keeps a lot of the pressure off. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if I can say to myself, am I a better parent because of what I did today, that I'm good. Um, mm -hmm. All of this idea that, okay, now 
there's all this, I have to represent all indigenous peoples. I don't really try and do that because it's impossible. I'm just here to represent myself and my family. And if I'm able to give back to my community and give back to the broader indigenous community, great. But those aren't really my objectives. That's not something I think about. Um, so the overarching goals, it started the conversation between me and Lonnie started with, okay, can we do a prevalent study? And I'll start looking at surveillance, right? Because that's what the government wants. That's government language right there. But even quickly after that, even within the week, I went and did some kind of exploratory research and I was like, the data is just not there. And it gets really complex really quickly in our community. So I'm just speaking just to Musquatchies, but I'm sure these, these are very relatable right across Canada. Um, a lot of our, our children don't go diagnosed. And they don't get diagnosed mm -hmm. for, for a, a lot of different reasons. One could be the stigma associated. Um, a lot of moms and parents, they're, 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 they're kind of afraid of that the pediatrician or whoever's you know, providing them care might diagnose their child with FASD. Because um, that happens way too often is misdiagnosis. There's a fear of the public health system. There's also mm -hmm. you know, structural issues. You have you know, poverty. You have a lot of other types of dysfunction, you know, uh, violence and things like that. And I understand where this is all coming from. This is all colonialism, right? This is residential schools. This is Indian Act. This is, you know, that intergenerational trauma we often talk about being passed down. And so you add all these different factors and a child often goes undiagnosed. Now, the amazing thing that Musquatchies does within their education system is they provide services to children without a diagnosis. And that happens in other communities, I know that, but it's few and far between. And I think that approach of really trying to meet the parents where they're at is the best approach. But, but at the same time, you need to think about when that child turns 18 and they don't have a diagnosis and they get cut off to all or everything. And so you kind of have to take a multifaceted approach when looking at whatever the challenges are in the community. And so there are two different things that the community really wants. The first one is, we want to really explore the cultural understandings of autism from a Cree lens or a Nahia lens. And mm -hmm. what I've learned through that is that we in general, we view children as gifted to us. Now, unfortunately in our communities, a lot of our culture is fractured because of colonialism. But what I'm trying to do is trying to bring this message back to the community, back to parents so that it can start to, so parents can take on these lessons and start applying it to their own lives. The second thing is, is that what I've learned is that autistic children are seen as gifted. And the reason for this is when a child chooses their parent, which is something that we believe, the child's spirit chooses their parents. A piece of that child's spirit actually stays in this, in this world or this realm over here. And for like the autistic child, that piece that stays over there helps them stay connected to that, that area or that section. And, uh, so we often see autistic people as more connected to the spiritual than the regular person. Mm. And when you start to explore this, what it really does is it addresses that stigma, right? And you start seeing children in a different way because the medical model is often deficit. It's like, we need to treat right. this child, this child, you know, it's almost like the, the autism is a disease, so to speak, and it needs mm -hmm. to be fixed. Whereas in our world, it's like this child is a gift and is gifted as well. And so that's one area that the community really wants to explore. And so I'm, I'm going to be reaching out to, you know, traditional knowledge keepers, elders, 
to be able to really explore what that looks like in the community and then turn that into a research project. The second um, thing is, is really exploring the, the, the experiences of parents and families in the community, because mm -hmm. that's another area that I think a lot of people would benefit from, you know, not only the community, but like service providers right across Canada, educators, because we really just don't know right now of all the challenges and how do we start to quantify and qualify those, right? So right, that right. one most, most likely will be a mixed method study that looks, um, the first part will be doing like a survey of like trying to gather those experiences quantitatively. And then the second piece will be just allowing these families to share their stories. Right, right. That's awesome. Um, I think we'll address this a little bit later on, but would you, just going back to something you said, would you say that like the need <clears throat> to be diagnosed by like an outsider, I guess, in order to, access like needs when you're like 18 or older makes it like challenging for like ASD um, children within the indigenous community to like accept that identity that they are special as opposed to um, a disorder. Yeah, um, the diagnostic process in and of itself is super challenging. Mm -hmm. And then so a lot of parents have told me that why, why would I get a diagnosis if that's my child that like Getting a diagnosis doesn't change the fact that that's my child and that I'm going to love that child no matter what. Right. And then the second piece was like, why would I get a diagnosis if there's no services to access with it? Mm -hmm. It's because to me, the diagnosis is like a gateway to funding. Mm. And there's no point in getting the diagnosis if you're not going to have services in place for them to be able to access. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge here is that federally, um, reserves are considered federal jurisdiction. So we're, and then, and then as you probably know, most services are, are provincial. And so mm -hmm. you have a jurisdictional tension or dispute between the two where the province doesn't want to come in because they say it's federal, but then the federal government is saying the services are provincial and they're supposed to be providing them. And they're, and this is where something like Jordan's principle comes in. And so if you don't know if the, 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 the audience doesn't know what Jordan's principle was, it's Jordan's principle now. And I highly recommend if you don't know anything about this to go do your own research on it, but it's a funding mechanism. And, it's, and it goes beyond that actually, it's actually a legal requirement through the federal government that's supposed to support children with disabilities on reserve who are status and off reserve who are status. Mm. And so this funding mechanism is supposed to be addressing that tension. Right. Um, and, but it, 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 it gets even more challenging than that, right? So let's say you get the Jordan's principle, you get accepted or you get uh, approved. Mm -hmm. The next challenge is, is finding service providers who want to come out to the reserve. Because you gotta understand mm -hmm. the way colonialism works is it's, it conditions you to a certain way to view indigenous peoples or first nations peoples in a very negative light, right? Mm -hmm. So people have a lot of different negative biases towards the reserve, which, you know, makes them apprehensive of coming out. And so it gets, it's, it's, so, it's very complex. And so with my research, I'm hoping to explore how complex it is and then let's start looking for, for solutions. Right, right. That's awesome. Um, so I'll skip down a couple of questions to what we had planned, but so would you say that the, this access or this, Jordan's principle you mentioned? Uh, was it Jordan's principle? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Would you say that those are some of the barriers that 
Indigenous autistic individuals face when trying to access those supports and like what kinds of supports would you say are the most difficult to access? I would say all the supports are quite challenging. Uh, mm -hmm. So Jordan's principle is supposed is essentially supposed to be a solution to those challenges. But as soon as you turn 18, you can't access Jordan's principle anymore. Mm -hmm. And if you were a child before Jordan's principle and you're an adult now, you don't have access to Jordan's principle. So there's still nothing for adult autistic people within First Nations communities. Okay. On top of that, if you want something like PDD, um, PDD is next to impossible for, for our adults to access. And then let's say if you have uh, an autistic adult living with you, but you can become overwhelmed. You know, there's a lot of different challenges that come with that. And um, what I've learned is that, and parents have told me this, is that the, the, the provincial government will pay somebody off reserve to take that child or take that adult and live with them away from their family and away from the community. And they'll get paid for it, like pretty mm -hmm. good money, but they won't offer that same payment to the actual child's parents or families because they live on oh. reserve. And to me, that's hugely problematic because the closer you can keep that child to their kinship relations and their community, the better the child's that, the better the well-being that child's going to have, right? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. you can see like the discrimination within the system right then and there. Um, fortunately, there's actually so within Treaty Seven, which is in southern Alberta, they recently uh, brought up a human rights violation complaint about the adults who live on reserve because they're being discriminated against. Now, this mm -hmm. has just started the process and I don't know what's gonna come of it, but I'm so grateful that people are starting to talk about it now. Yeah, that's really important to address, especially, yeah, that makes, I can see how that would be very um, discriminatory if you're gonna be paying the people, but not the actual parents of the child or the adult. Um, yeah, that's so important to address. Would you say, so going off of that, I guess, would you say that the importance of community for, what would you say is the importance of community for an Indigenous autistic person? I think community is a, a very important, right? So I, again, I'm not autistic, so I'm not going to try and speak on behalf of autistic people. That's not my place, mm -hmm. but I will speak on behalf of my family and I've seen how important community is to my children. Um, and it goes beyond community, the human side of community though. So there's a, a word we use in our language and it's called Wachtoktuan. And basically what that is, it's a, it's a legal tradition that we would use that really defines the relationships we have, not only to community, but to each other. Um, community, like your relationship to your culture, your relationships to the land, the environment, your relationships to your food. It could be relationships in any way that you want to define it. Mm -hmm. And what I'm learning is that the closer I can keep my children to the culture and keep that relationship really strong, the better their well-being is. And so when I think about community, the first thought that comes to mind is, okay, communities as in, you know, maybe there's a, an autistic community that I can get my children involved with, which would be really great. And eventually that's what I'm going to explore. But then there's other communities like a, I, I, I'm able to access a, a more cultural community and go and do ceremonies such as like uh, sweat ceremonies or chicken dance ceremonies with my children to keep them connected to that community as well. 
And I think mm -hmm. the more connection I can build for them, the better. Um, I think connection at the end of the day is what I'm really trying to go after for my children. And I think connection for anybody, including autistic people is really important. Of course, I think um, for my children anyways, what I see is they connect differently than somebody like myself, right? And so when they're mm -hmm. connecting and they're staying connected and what they're taking away from those connections may be different from me, but they're just as important nonetheless. Right, right. Um, do, would you, what would you say would the role of like a respected elder be in supporting um, maybe your children or any other indigenous autistic individual? I, so for myself, I've been able to kind of develop a support system of culture, which I'm really grateful for. I know mm -hmm. that some people, even within Muscogee, so Muscogee is rich in culture, but for some of our families, they still don't have access to that. And it still seems mm -hmm. like a very foreign thing, right? And so I've been able to bring in, you know, knowledge keepers and elders and things like that into my life, which has, of course, benefit, benefited my family. Now, what I'm trying to do with the research again is give back. Um, so not only am I trying to do these two studies, but I'm, I'm very mindful of that. Okay, I'm getting something out of this. My community's given me something. I got to give back. And so what I want to do is start developing opportunities for other autistic children and adults within the community to start connecting with the culture. And so we're going to be hosting a tea dance actually next year that is specific for autistic people and individuals and families in the community so that they, they can come and join our ceremonies but at the same time, being mindful of the sensories and, you know, different things that are happening and not having too many people there and not making it too loud or like too, uh, too much for them to handle. So taking mm -hmm. a different approach, but one that still allows for that connection that I've been talking about. And so I think it's really important that, you know, um, I, I'm able to build that awareness, not only among the community, but for elders too, because some of the elders in our community, they can be very like, okay, this is how we're doing it. You have to be very like this, this, and this, but having a conversation with those elders beforehand saying, guess what? We might have to adapt as we go. Because some of these children, they might be trying to run around. They might be trying to run away. <laughs> they could mm -hmm. be you know, doing this, this, and that. And so I think we need to take a very patient and gentle approach with these children to allow them to not feel so isolated or you know, not to, to feel like they can they have a space here that they can feel safe too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really awesome goal. And it's, it's great that you're having a whole, um, I guess, accommodated version of a ceremony or a dance for, for them. So that's great. Um, so you, moving on, I guess, a little bit, you chair the Indigenous Relations Circle. So could you maybe explain a little bit more about the goals of this circle and what it is you do as advocates for Indigenous autistic individuals and their families? Yeah, so the Indigenous Relations Circle first started within the Autism Society of Alberta. So I sit also on the Autism Society of Alberta's Alliance Planning Committee. And so this committee is made up of people right across all the different sectors of autism, right? Education, employment, diagnosis, uh, services, supports, and so within those conversations, I had the idea of like, okay, we need something that's specific for indigenous people because we're largely left out of the conversation, which can and does render us invisible, unfortunately. And unless, unless people are coming in and bringing that to the table, people just don't understand. 
Mm. And so I had recently, so last year, I was able to do some circle keeper training. And so I applied that training to the circle. And so the, the original plan for the circle is for us just to get to know each other and to learn from each other because I'm still relatively new to this. I've been doing the PhD now for a little over two years. I've been a parent for four, but it's not something I really grew up with. It's not something I find is, it's, I'm still learning a lot over the years. And I feel like even now, if I were to listen to this podcast in a year, some of the things I say will probably change. You know, terminology mm -hmm. is always evolving. Um, we're, we're getting better at, uh, at getting services or making sure that we're uh, advocating on behalf of, you know, autistic people and things like that. So what I've, what I've really wanted to do within that circle was first learn from them. And so the circle is made up of uh, Indigenous autistic people, uh, parents, service providers, government, and just people with a passion for Indigenous peoples and autism, really. And so the first year was just us learning. But now we're getting into, okay, let's do, let's have some action-oriented events, right? And so we're trying to, the next thing we're going to be doing is having a sweat lodge for the circle. And so that's happening in a couple of weeks. At the sweat lodge, we're going to ask for guidance and support through, um, through the, I guess, the more spiritual side. And we're also planning, you know, different things in the future, right? Like we want to have like an autism symposium. We want to go to community and start doing town halls. We want to start giving back and taking what we've learned over the past year and start applying it and, and sharing that knowledge too, because there's, there's a wealth of knowledge within this circle. And right now we're just trying to figure out what's the best way to get that out. Mm -hmm. Especially from like different perspectives. I guess you mentioned there's so many various individuals in that circle that will be able to give, who will be able to give like a lot of different input on yes. the topics. That's awesome. Um, okay, so what kinds, what are, the, so going off of this indigenous relations circle that you have um, co-chaired, what are ways that neurotypical individuals and peers can help foster a safe, supportive environment that is conducive to addressing the specific needs of um, these autistic individuals. Yeah, I, and I got asked this question all the time when I do like mm -hmm. conferences or presentation is like, how do I be, become a better support or better ally within this area? And mm -hmm. one of the first things I tell them is that it really is all about relationships with us. We, we want the relationships. We want you to put the time and effort into getting to know us. And unfortunately, what I find, especially within service provision, is you have that little, maybe you're doing SLP and you have an hour. Or if you're a care provider or a doctor, you have seven minutes. And so our worldview of wanting the relationships and what happens within these funding, the way people get funded is there's a tension there. And so being able to take the time to get to know us, asking the right questions, learning how to lead into discomfort, I think is another big mm -hmm. one and being really reflective too. So reflexivity of that ability to you know, ask yourself, like, why do I feel the way I do right now? And why is this situation making me uncomfortable? Right. And, and having mm -hmm. that ability to critically think about yourself in a way that a lot of people, unfortunately don't know how, because, and I don't know why, but just having that ability to like lean into that discomfort a little bit and allow that discomfort or whatever's in happening in front of you, to learn from it. And so mm -hmm. prioritizing again, so prioritizing the relationship, um, learning that some, so I, I was taught this thing 
uh, a few weeks ago, actually. And it, and it really looked at the differences between ego and humility. And so it was explained to me that the opposite of ego is humility. And so the ego, um, I was taught that what ego looks at the world through scarcity. And then humility looks at the world through abundance. Ego wants to speak. Humility wants to listen. Uh, right. Ego, like, ego thinks in terms of I. Humility thinks in terms of we. And so mm -hmm. when we talk about cultural humility, I think that's where it's, I'm trying to get at here is having a, taking a more, an approach that really allows for that humility that, you know, I think a lot of people are lacking, unfortunately, especially when they're wanting to work with our families or our children or whoever else is within that circle. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's something to think about. I, I never thought of it that way about ego and humility, but those are really interesting views that you have shared with us and our listeners today. So thank you. Um, I think that was most of our questions. You kind of answered one in between all of that, I was going to ask, like, how would you say that the approach to ASD is different um, in an Indigenous community compared to mainstream society? So would it just be, or I guess the summary of it, would it just be that um, it's viewed more as a gift and something to um, celebrate as opposed to diagnose and treat? Yes. So I think it's a bit more nuanced than that, though. So again, mm -hmm. our cultures are fractured and not everybody has this lesson. Mm -hmm. um, not all Indigenous communities are the same, right? So I'm speaking from a Cree lens. You know, you might hear something different from somebody who may be Blackfoot or Sioux or Anishinaabe. And so when we're thinking about how do we, when you ask the question is like, how do, how do Indigenous peoples take a different approach? I think we need to reframe that question a bit too, as it'd be like, how, do, uh, how does your tribe, right? So keeping it mm -hmm. as specific as we can, because when you start to impan indigenize things, that's when you can run into trouble because something that might work here might not work somewhere else, even within Canada, right? right. And one thing I try to tell people is the same thing happens. So like when you meet an autistic person, you've met just one autistic person. I don't think one autistic person can speak on behalf of all autistic people. And it's the same mm -hmm. thing for me as an like quote unquote indigenous person. Like I don't even identify as indigenous, I identify as Cree. And so what I'm learning is that, so before I was doing autism research, I was doing indigenous health research. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the same things were happening within indigenous health research. So there's often a deficit focus. There was, we needed to be fixed. We have outsiders coming in and making decisions on our behalf. And all these things that happen now within the autism world, they were happening to us decades ago. And so mm -hmm. I'm trying to take these lessons that I've learned as a Indigenous health researcher and bring them over here now, because there's so many different similarities. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about, okay, so as a Cree person, what's, what's our, how do we approach autism? The word I've used, and I've used this quite a few times, is pitetum, which translates as he or she thinks differently. And that approach, I think, really allows for a more neutral uh, way of going about it. And it does encourage mm -hmm. more acceptance, I would argue. But again, not all of our families have this knowledge. And some of our families don't even practice the culture, right? Some might be Christian. Some might have different beliefs. And so it gets really complicated and really nuanced really quick. And I think that's just something that I've had to learn how to kind of navigate. 
And so right. when I say I don't speak on behalf of all indigenous peoples, that's what I mean. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. So would you say, when would you say would be like the line between generalization and like being specific? So if I want to say that like, oh, ASD affects like indigenous communities differently, would that be like an appropriate like generalization? Like as opposed to saying like, oh, the Cree community believes this. That makes sense. I think when you're trying to get more specific, like when you're trying to come to cultural understandings, like mm -hmm. indigenous isn't a culture. It's the equivalent to me as saying Asian or European. Mm -hmm. And if you go to Europe, you're not saying, oh, are you European? Like you're right. saying, are you, are you German? Or are you French? And you're trying to keep mm -hmm. it as specific in details as you can. Mm -hmm. And I think in some context, the word indigenous works just fine. Like if you're writing a like a academic paper and you're trying to say in Canada has so many different indigenous peoples and within that circle though, you gotta keep, get a bit more detailed as well because it just gets, all of our experiences are so different, right? They're different. So Canada has obviously three indigenous groups like First Nations, Métis, Inuit. Even just within First Nations, we have different tribes right across Canada, different languages, um, differences in geography. So trying to, somebody trying to access services who lives in a remote community is going to have a very different experience than somebody who lives in a city or is in an urban setting. And mm -hmm. so there, there are times where being general is acceptable, but I feel like if you're talking to somebody and you're asking them and asking them kind of about their experiences, the more specific and detailed you can get, the better. That makes sense. That makes sense. That's a good to keep in mind. So would you say like for, like say you're accessing support as like an 18, 19 year old, would it be helpful to be like, I guess, have the label of indigenous or have like the status so that you are able to access specific supports? Or would you say that, like, what would, what would be your take on that? Yeah, so if you're, say you're just turned 18, you don't have access to Jordan's principal or FSCD anymore, mm -hmm. um, but you live on a reserve, you're, you're pretty much on your own, unfortunately. Um, I know that the way in which PDD is given, let's say if you lived off reserve, you have to have a certain IQ level, which is, a, a, to me, is a really bad way of going about it. Mm -hmm. So if you have a certain IQ over something, I think it's like 80 or 90, I'm not 100% sure, you don't qualify because you're seen oh. as somebody who can function on their own. Um, and But if you live on a reserve, that's not even an option. And so this is a whole nother area that needs to be explored. And for me, I, I, I'm really mindful of not trying to take too much on. And not only that, but my PhD is in pediatric, which means I have to focus mm. on children's health. And so mm. I've, I'm always trying to look for other opportunities for other people to come in and start doing some of the research as well. Because at the same time, I think we need to start building research capacity in our communities so that we can start doing the research ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I like somebody has to explore this, right? For adults, um, another area that's heavily underexplored is children with disabilities that are in child family services, right? And that's something that hasn't right. even been touched yet. And it comes up in conversations all the time. But unfortunately for my research, I got to keep it within a certain scope. But I'm always looking for other opportunities for other people to maybe take on some of this work too. Right. Was there something in your research that you found like specifically interesting or unexpected so far? So when my 
children were first diagnosed, my heart sank. And I was one of those people who had all these ideas about autism. Mm -hmm. And these ideas were very toxic. Like you have your Hollywood version, right? You see like Rain Man or something. And that's your idea of autism. And Mm -hmm. I fully believe if I had a better cultural understanding, like I was talking about as a gift, I think my heart probably wouldn't have sank. And I probably wouldn't have like had that same feeling of like dread almost. Like as a parent, Mm -hmm. you, you think of autism and you think of like, all these bad things that all these negative connotations that go along with it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, like I said, I I fully believe if, if I knew that the word petatum and there's other words, I'm not going to try to say them today because I'm not a fluent Cree speaker, but they're all spiritually based. Right. And so if that was the approach and I've seen, heard that right away, I think that would have changed my approach as well, because it took me a while to really get used to the idea of even having autistic children. But as soon as I bought in and as soon as it it took me less than a year, but as soon as I figured it out and I was like, you know what, I'm not going to allow this to, you know, dictate how I treat my children. Absolutely no way. I started getting all the supports in place. I started doing the cultural thing. I started doing all these other things as soon as I was able to take a more cultural approach. And so the Mm -hmm. biomedical model, that, that, that approach that says it's a deficit, it's a negative, it needs to be treated. I think it actually causes harm at the end of the day. And it changes the parental approach to the children. And you see mm-hmm. some parents, unfortunately, they, they're more like, okay, let's, let's get this child the treatment or the therapies, and then maybe we'll accept them someday. Mm. And for me, I've, I've switched that. I said, I fully 100% accept my children unconditionally, but I'm still going to get the services and stuff in place to make sure that they still have a a quality of life that I, I have to be able to provide as a parent. Mm-hmm. So was it easier for like, I guess your second child to be diagnosed? What did your heart like not drop as drop that time? I was still learning about it though, by then, mm. because we didn't have to get those services or anything in place for, for Marshall. And we still don't, mm-hmm. he's still completely, he doesn't need like more intensive. He needs extra support throughout the day at school. Right. But it really didn't hit me until Anders, I think, first, because his was so like, I guess, pronounced, so to speak, right? Like he wasn't mm-hmm. talking. And there was a time where I, I wasn't sure if he was going to talk because oh. he wasn't really saying words until he was like five, five and a half. Mm. And so when he starts talking back, that makes me grateful. Mm-hmm. But when I started bringing that culture and everything else into it, that's when I was able to fully buy in and say, you know what, I'm going to dedicate my entire life to this so I can be a better dad. And that's what mm-hmm. I've done. That's incredibly meaningful. Um, yeah, that's all the questions I had for you. Was there anything you wanted to leave our listeners with um, before we end? Yeah, um, always look for different types of connection, right? Like we emphasize social connection between human to human. But there are so many different versions of connection that I've tried to bring into my life. Like, I know you probably can't see it, but behind me, I have our smudging area that Mm -hmm. we come in and we smudge every morning. And then we pray and we grab the feather and we pray. And so looking for different types, right? And it could be spiritual. It could be something else that you might think about. But connection to me is at the core of what I'm trying to do with my family. And it has brought better well-being to all of us. So... Yeah. That's awesome. 
Um, so thank you, Grant, for sharing your thoughts and your work with your PhD and all your research with our listeners today. We really do appreciate you taking the time to speak with us, and um, we look forward to seeing where your research leads. Oh, thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm.